Welcome to The Pulse. I'm Kamal and Peter from the Center for Analytics and Behavioral Change, a nonprofit organization that works on the impacts of social media on society. And my guest today is Ibrahim Fakir. Ibrahim is a well-known and widely respected political analyst and commentator who sits on the SABC's panel of election analysts. He is also the director of programs at the Orwell Socioeconomic Research Institute. I feel especially enthusiastic about being able to have a conversation with you about what's just happened in the local elections and the role of social media in it. But first, I just want to foreground why this conversation is an important one to have. And, you know, social media, it's important to state, and I've noted that Ibrahim also states it very often, that social media analysis is not necessarily indicative of what's going on in a society, you know. But what it is, and, and the way I've come to view it, is it's kind of a canary in the coal mine. It gives you an idea of what potentially divisive and polarizing narratives can spill over into the broader social or societal ecosystem and wreak havoc within it. So the virtual realm today has become ubiquitous. I mean, pretty much everything we do, especially under COVID, has a virtual option. So, you know, whether it's shopping, whether it's teaching, whether it's learning, whether it's, you know, commerce, whether it's investing, banking, everything is now being done online. And with that has come, you know, social media. We are more hyper-connected than ever before, but at the same time, and paradoxically, more atomized than ever before. And this is a very important point in my view, because... The political theorist Hannah Arendt viewed this atomization, the atomized masses, this atomization as being key to the ability to exploit the the masses with propaganda. So I'll read you a quote from her, which is referencing really the, 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 the Second World War and how it came about and the genocide that took place within it. And she says, in the origins of totalitarianism, she says, In an ever-changing, incomprehensible world, the masses have reached the point where they would, at the same time, believe everything and nothing, think that everything was possible and that nothing was true. Mass propaganda discovered that its audience was ready at all times to believe the worst, no matter how absurd, and it did not particularly object to being deceived because it held every statement to be a lie anyhow. The totalitarian mass leaders based their propaganda on the correct psychological assumption that Under such conditions, one could make people believe the most fantastic statements one day and trust that if the next day they were given irrefutable proof of their falsehood, they would take refuge in cynicism. Instead of deserting the leaders who had lied to them, they would protest that they had known all along that the statement was a lie and would admire the leaders for their superior tactical cleverness. So globally, we've seen a decline in public trust in the key institutions that produce a democracy, government, media, civil society, and business. And, and along with that also, I would include academics, even though you know the Edelman Barometer doesn't specifically look at that, but experts and scientists and academics. And so we've seen this decline in public trust in these key institutions, which are foundational to a democracy. And at the same time, we've seen a rise in populist kind of strongman-styled leaders. And their rhetoric is typically polarizing and divisive. And and this is across the world, you know, from India to the Philippines to Brazil (laughs) um, to the USA, you know, uh, under Trump and many more. And this goes against the original visions for the Internet, 
that is, you know, as part of the internet generation, our vision for the internet was that as we became more interconnected, uh, we would bring about greater tolerance and understanding and we would move towards a world that was more, um, for lack of a better term, more understanding of each other's differences and more unified in the face of the challenges that we faced. At the CABC, of course, we still believe in this vision and are demonstrating that it can be achieved, but there's still a lot of work to do. Now, within this broader context of changes that are playing out today, we want to delve into how social media in particular was used in the local government elections. And what we want to do is we want to see how it's been used constructively. And we also want to look at the damage or how it was used destructively. And in our, in our question and uh, in our analysis and our discussion, our conversation, we're going to look at the role of government and the president, the Independent Electoral Commission, which is key to producing a free and fair election. We're going to look at political parties and their leaders and the role they played. And we're going to look at the role of voters as well. But first, I want to ask a more general question to set the scene. Earlier in the year at CABC, we observed quite a push on social media towards smaller parties. Basically, what we were seeing was a lot of users, um, social media users, encouraging voters not to vote for either the opposition or the ruling party, but to go out and vote for, for, for smaller parties. This is pretty much what we've seen in the local elections. I'm hesitant to make a direct correlation between what's happening on social media. There are obviously a range of other factors that contributed to people uh, going out and voting for smaller parties. What's going on in politics in the era of social media in South Africa right now, just generally? Well, thanks for having me, Kamar, and it's a great pleasure to speak to you, um, having followed some of your work, uh, particularly scientific stuff. But nevertheless, you know, I mean, technology is both a facilitator um, and a hinderer of, of democratic politics and of democratic voice uh, in particular. And I think we should, we should for a moment just consider that before we come to the issue of the parties, right? So there's a technical aspect to South Africa. I mean, for one, we lag behind in terms of the opening up of wider spectrum um, and the radio frequencies and wireless transmission and bandwidth and so on. Right? And that's purely a governmental problem. Uh, but nevertheless, we are still, as a society, fairly highly immersed, particularly compared to the continent. We're the kind of digital leader uh, in both absorption and penetration. So big tech, social media, uh, those are those are big uh, features of our political landscape, even though, as you rightly point out, we should be cautious about generalizing what happens there to uh, across the universe. Because as you, you're talking, things like Twitter have about a 14% penetration rate, if slightly less. Uh, of course, Facebook is a little more, WhatsApp is even more. And the other social media platforms, I think, are good for campaigning, but I'm probably not that good for democratic exchange, right? So they're not good for democratic voice, for visibility, uh, and for expressing your choice, even though things like Snapchat and so on, um, they could work, but they, they, they're not terribly attuned to the kind of messaging that democratic politics um, requires, or that politics in general requires, right? So 
What this does, though, however, is that it's shaping our public sphere in sort of fairly serious ways, both in the economy, because you have companies which are now structuring themselves as media companies, but are playing in all kinds of different spaces and so on. It shapes politics, shapes our society generally. So there's this epochal shift, right? And what is done globally kind of, it's complicated terrain because the same thing that gave rise to uh, Barack Obama who used Twitter spectacularly in his in his in his election campaign it also enabled the kind of politics as you pointed out of Donald Trump so same instrument same platform similar uses but very different outcomes and i think in south africa there's a mirroring of a similar pattern in the use of social media. And we've got to understand that social media, to the extent that they platforms and instruments which can create cultures and, and social political cultures of their own, also partly mirror the social political culture of the society generally. So if you look at our social cultural landscape, you're talking violence, you're talking high levels of inequality, you talk about political violence subsumed under the general rubric of normalized crime and violence, domestic violence, rape, and so on. So there's major social pathologies and major civic immorality. Part of that gets reflected on the social media and the socials in part amplify how that plays out in society. When it comes to politics, the same kind of logic sort of animates it, right? Because the extreme messaging, and it's completely uncensored, remember, uh, and, and the way in which the regulatory authorities, um, both of, of, of all the social media outlets, have not always been as perspicacious as they, as they need to be to police certain kinds of hate speech and so on. So it's almost like it's party time on, on the socials, particularly if you've got fairly extreme messages. And I noticed that it's the extreme messaging that picks up a heck of a lot of traction on social media. It doesn't always translate into behavior. And COVID, because we're so isolated and atomized, we're not seeing it playing itself out um, amongst people in interpersonal spaces. Though, if we were in a different environment, I dare say we might have found something different. Now, the way in which that affected the party's performance is you'll see some parties used the extreme messaging, sometimes even constructing fake news, fake items of news and propagating them as facts because they fit into their political rhetoric. Those parties, um, though in the bigger scheme of things, they didn't do that well. They didn't do terribly well. For example, let's take Action SA. They did okay in the five or six municipalities that they contested, and they and for a, for a first showing they did reasonably well. But they trended on social media for days on end, as if they were going to do exponentially better than they practically did. The same was true for the EFF, and the EFF has this problem. Uh, across all of the three elections that it's contested so far. Extremely high visibility on social media, extreme messaging, sometimes very clever and adapt, flexible, adaptable, quite emotional in terms of what its messaging is. But the extremities sometimes creep in. And there isn't they, their performance is not reflected in the same way in the real world as it is on social media. But a party like the, like the Patriotic Alliance it somehow worked for them.
uh, it didn't work as well for some of the independent candidates. And this is one of the few instruments that they had at their disposal because they don't have the cash to do the typical kind of campaigning, door-to-door outreach, and so on that established parties do, right? But it worked for them to a limited extent. And the reason it worked to them for, for, to them, for them for, to a limited extent is embedded in the general political firmament that, that we have in our society, and that is the independents themselves. Some of them are genuinely independent, some are, 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 I would say, proxies of other parties, and, and some emerge out of the credibility crisis that is happy, that is animating political parties generally, so they stand as independents. And they didn't fare as well as people thought they would. So the one thing I would quibble with you about is that, sure, them, some of the parties may have done extremely well on the socials, but it didn't really translate into a real-world electoral performance. If you look at the actual performance, I mean, of course there were massive changes. And I like to sum up this election as saying there was areas of consolidation. And in part, you know, the DA consolidates by winning Cape Town and some of the um, uh, uh, municipalities in the Western Cape. This consolidation in the sense that the ANC continues to um, govern in the largest number of municipalities by a long mile. But this consolidation also of a trend which started in 2009, and that is decreased support for the established parties. From 2009, the apogee of it for the ANC at least is in 2016 when they lose three metros, and that consolidates now where they lose almost all. Right? It's saved by the skin of the teeth in one and making deals in others. But the rest, they've gone. So they've lost influence in the major metropolitan areas of, and drivers of growth, redistribution, and so on. And then there's change. The change is obviously following on from the consolidation is that the DA loses municipalities it's controlled in the Western Cape. The ANC's decline goes beyond the metros and even into secondary cities and so on. So there's that aspect of change. And then the aspect of change is what you pointed out, Kamaran, the rise of some of the smaller parties, the independents and so on. So there's consolidation and there's a degree of change. Uh, and I think part of it was aided by social media, but social media really, I don't think, was a great determinant of what's going on. Though it's a reflection, it's a reflector, I think, of 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 what's going on in society. And the reason why is 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 because the mainstream media, and I think here they need to be um, to be hammered. Have now taken the lead for their stories of social media, and in that sense, it's having a you know it's having an impact and an influence bigger than what it ordinarily ought to. Yeah, that's fascinating, and and I think it's you're absolutely spot on to characterize it as a consolidation as well as a push towards smaller parties. Um, that's a very sober kind of analysis of it. You know, one of the things you raised was this extreme messaging. And it's very interesting because at first, before we started seeing this kind of avid political campaigning on social media, it was really marketing, you know, social media influencer marketing that was out there. And I reviewed a book uh, recently for South African Law Journal on uh, the regulation of social media influencers. And in it, what was very interesting is that it was precisely the most extreme messaging that got the most attention for social media influencers to the extent where you had teenagers going around beating people up and putting it on their profiles to, you know, to, as notoriety as a way of gaining popularity or fame, you know. 
And so that extreme messaging is definitely a feature, and it's a feature even in these organized influencer pods, you know, uh, that marketing, uh, that marketers use to try and sell products and, you know, get you to sign up for services and things like that. But one of my observations about social media in particular, whether you look at Facebook, whether you look at Twitter, uh, pretty much any platform, Reddit, you know, there's tons of them, they're not really designed for political organizing. Although a lot of political campaigning can be mounted upon it. And I just wondered what your thoughts are around that. You know, is this kind of, you know, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it seems to me like, you know, social media, especially like a Twitter, it's a soundbite culture. So you, you can't get a lot across. You can't put your whole <laughs> election manifesto on it. So you seize the opportunity to say anything that, that will spark and get the algorithm and people engaged. That's exactly how it was used. I mean, look, there are, I think, benefits in that you can break the chunks out of your manifesto and have a series of tweets, although I find that that doesn't find much traction. You could do something quick, perhaps on Snapchat or on on one of the other platforms and so on, right? But I think what Twitter, whether it's in the marketing space, whether it's in politics, is the extreme messaging or being rude, or alternatively, uh, taking the Mickey out of someone and really, uh, you know, being being really like wit gets you a little bit of traction. But if your wit is actually undermining of someone, and sometimes I find even if it's verging on bullying, that's the kind of thing that attracts interest. Now, it's almost like car crash television, where you literally can't tear yourself away from it. Uh, and I think that's what attracts people on the socials because that's the kind of thing that attracts uh, people there. I mean, uh, as opposed to Instagram where it's kind of highly stylized, where it's all about aesthetic and a particular aesthetics start to rule the rules. Uh, but there, as a tool of campaigning, is, 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 is possible. There's some potential for it. But as a tool for mobilization, as a tool for communicating a political message, for a tool of widespread campaigning, I think it's got fairly inherent limits. And those limits are not because we're saying that the platform and the instrument is amenable to both, um, uh, you know, good politics and bad politics. But the fact is that it's there. As a platform, it's available. We have to realize that to the extent that it amplifies and gives voice to some people, it conversely also silences a whole range of others. And the most worrying aspect in which the silencing has happened, unfortunately, is in the more prudent messaging, the more public education type stuff, the more informative stuff. So, I, you know, you were talking in your intro, Kamaran, about the IEC, about the public broadcaster, about voter education. Notice that those messages on social media didn't actually get much implication, even though it was there. How is this reflected in the presence of voter voices in the social media conversation? That's an excellent point that you've picked up. There's, voter voices were, were, were actually quite subdued. And you'd find even the work of other monitoring organizations like Media Monitoring Africa and so on, find that the messaging, the key messaging, the key items, the key aspirations 
are those which are articulated by political parties, political party leaders, acolytes, supporters, and so on. So they, they set the tone, they set the character, they set the nature of what's, of what's going on. And your colleagues at the CABC in the early days found that the, the extent of the conversation about the elections was fairly limited, that it was driven by a few people, and those people were circulating amongst themselves in a in a in a in a bubble of a conversation, and then on the sidelines you have the part the the party type. I mean, I don't want to call them bots, but they kind of basically paid party people who kind who are amplifying the party's messages. They're either supporters, and then sometimes on occasion you'd have people entering the fray who enter a conversation. If it, you know, remains at the level of sensibility and so on, it will um, die down. If it's obstreperous, if it's rude, if it's uh, if it's taking the mickey out of someone, uh, if it's kind of hectic campaigning with extreme messaging, it will gather traction. And I found that like that's just the nature of politics, right? In some cases, I think that propels and attracts interest. But by and large, most voter interest was not that visible on the social media. But the reality is that this is the one case in which social media was mirroring what's happening out there in reality. In reality, there was a major crisis of credibility in institutions. And it's not just the surveys which are, which are telling us, uh, the very credible ones, uh, especially done those by the Human Sciences Research Council, uh, Afrobarometer and the Institute for Justice and Reconciliation and so on. Those ones have a fairly solid method as opposed to the you know market opinion poll type things. These ones have solid methods, so I trust them. They were showing repeatedly that trust in institutions generally was low. Trust in political parties was even lower, less than, a, less than one in four. That means less than 25% of people uh, had great trust in political parties. When it comes to local government itself, the very institutions for which we had elections for, trust is again below 25%. So that crisis of credibility, I think, mirrored itself not just on the presence and the, of the discussions on social media, but in the actual voter turnout, as, as you say. Yeah, it's fascinating, you know, when you refer to how people get traction, how leaders get traction on social media. It's kind of reminiscent of that Monty Python sketch, you know, silly party, sensible party, and the sensible parties are losing <laughs> in, in the era that we're in today. Um, and it's really fascinating that there is a mirroring, even though, I mean, it's speculative about the, the, the causality right now, it's, but there is a correlation between this, you know, disengagement from, you know, democracy itself. We saw that in the voter turnout, but also our key institutions um, and also a disengagement on social media. What we found often in uh, at CABC is that when the, con when the conversations are especially um, fraught and there's a lot of mudslinging, ordinary people are reluctant to get involved. They don't want to get involved in a conversation where they're going to be trolled and insulted and made a fool of. So they kind of stay out on the outside of it because essentially there's a bun fight going on. Uh, so I think to some extent that also influences people. You know, you need more voices out there that mirror you for you to feel comfortable to say something sensible <laughs> in the spectrum. We've seen the abuse of social media by politicians and other actors alike. 
to gain ascendancy in the political realm. And one of the questions that we've been grappling with, and I think is being grappled with across the world, is how should online political campaigning be treated? In particular, talking about regulation here. What, what should the rules of the game be um, so that people are held accountable, for example, for um, rhetoric that may incite violence, for example? How do we, how do we grapple with this, this new era of social media-driven <laughs> society and politics? <laughs> we know of um, one party which had a public representative who was ready to grill Facebook in Parliament. And I think we underestimate the degree of power and influence and authority that Parliament and parliamentarians actually have. And other people in this person's party said, oh, no, we don't want to run into a fracas with Facebook because we're going to lose. And uh, they're one of our, our tools for campaigning. So you need to go easy on how you question them when they come to Parliament. So if you're going to have that kind of attitude from politicians, we're not going to get anywhere. And I think it's taken a long time time. I mean, there have been big problems with Google, with Facebook, with Twitter, and a range of others around what regulatory mechanisms they're going to put in to um, combat some of the kind of misinformation, disinformation, but more worryingly, what you're talking about, Kamar, and that is actual hate speech. Now, I, you know, I think one must be careful here. To the extent that social media is a bit of a facilitator, quite apart from the fact that it's not the real world, I think we still need to maintain a light-touch approach to regulation. And I think our constitution, the raft of statutory laws, and our common law may be sufficient to cover the kind of more pernicious extremities which are uh, perhaps evident from some of the party leaders, right? But I think the platform owners and the platform people are going to have to come up with policies and regulatory instruments for what they were going to do on, 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 on their platforms to limit the abuse of their platform for this kind of messaging. And in this regard... Uh, I think it seems as if Google, Twitter, Facebook are coming to the party, but slowly. I think their complaints mechanisms are going to need to expand uh, quite significantly. They're going to have to allow uh, the provision of reasons for why uh, they, why someone finds something objectionable and then launch proper investigations into them. At the moment, I think the approach is inadequate. The approach where you're going to choose one or two options and choosing one option excludes all the other options uh, renders it kind of almost mute, uh, moot. Get, telling you that you have the option not to follow someone or you have the option on Facebook to unfriend someone or you have the option to block or mute someone uh, is, not, is not sufficient because the message still stays out there for a whole range of other users. So I think there's a balanced approach which is going to have to be struck here. States need to take some responsibility, but I think their responsibility needs to be light touch because you don't want to 
to, to be so extreme that you go in and you regulate this instrument to such a degree that it starts inhibiting free speech, firstly. Secondly, sometimes it's good for us to know what the more extreme politics being proffered are so that you can combat it. Otherwise, it circulates in its own dark chambers, whether online or offline, and more perniciously offline. Uh, and then you don't know that it comes to light. So in that sense, I mean, the, you know, I know I sound like a horrible liberal, but that's okay. Politically, it's perfectly defensible for one to be. Uh, but I think light touch regulation is necessary, nothing too much. But I think the platforms need to come to the party uh, in a much in a much stronger way. You know, I think one of the key things, you know, that underpins all these platforms is how they set up their algorithms and what that incentivizes. Because essentially people game the algorithm, whether they're marketing or whether they're sending out political messaging, they're seeking to game the algorithm to get as much traction as they can. And so there's there's some deep introspection to be done, but I agree with you. I don't think that's a role for states to play. It's interesting because in the US, online free speech is more protected than in the real world. It's uncanny. And it's 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 different in Europe, of course, because you know they've got different jurisdictions <laughs> making up the EU. So it's a more complex way of navigating it. And when they looked at marketing influences in Europe, um, there were a lot of um, self-organization around it. So codes of conduct that influencers would, would subscribe to. And that's more the kind of approach I think would, would work. You know, if we've got people out there being paid to do political campaigning and lobbying online, of course they should declare it. I think that should just be a basic rule of the game, you know, so that we know you're being paid to give me this messaging. And it's not just your personal opinion as an influencer, for example. But sometimes, Kamara, that, that will become obvious, right, when, when you have someone. Because, I mean, I'm finding it hard. So imagine if you had declaration, now we've got a law saying you've got to declare what your private sources of funding are above a certain threshold. I'm wondering whether someone's going to come on to a social media platform and declare, hey, I'm actually a campaigner for so-and-so. I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an organic process where it emerges automatically. Where you can see what kind of politics someone is proffering. Uh, and and there's a whole range of other things that they that they can uh, that you can you can you can do to 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 see what their sort of political outlook is in terms of who they follow, what messages they amplify, who they interact with, and so on. Uh, but I'm wondering, do you think it's realistic that someone's going to come on and say, "Hey, I'm Kumar and Peter, and I'm actually uh, funded by so and so to to." To, to punt for so and so I, I, I think that's going to be unrealistic particularly in the social media messaging well it, it would have to be agreed upon as a code of conduct I mean that's how they've gone about doing it uh, at the CABC though when we considered this question uh, we, we made it um, standard practice that if we are paying people to dialogue into those spaces that they should make they should make that uh, you know they should they should make that known you know I'm doing this on behalf of an organization it's a job that I'm doing <laughs> you know um, so hopefully we're taking the lead there and it's not too unrealistic to expect others to follow suit uh, it would be great if they did though luckily the rest of us were also transparent uh, in in how we 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 also followed the elections with your colleagues from CAPC we were we were quite transparent about the fact that we that we're doing this but and it was quite explicit that we're doing it in the public interest
Yes, of course. And I mean, you know, academics, for example, have to declare all their interests. <laughs> you know, I'm funded by so-and-so. Not that, you know, obviously in civil society, you also have to respect anonymity. And I know Twitter, for example, is very big on respecting the anonymity of users so that they can have their freedom of speech. And that's something that I support as well, you know, in principle. But I think where money is changing hands, you, we should perhaps be a bit more, uh, scrutinize it a bit more. <laughs> Remember um, in 2019, ANC was caught uh, having had a, a, a person from a prominent family leading what they called a war room. And these guys were in a, in a, sitting in a, a bunch of them were sitting in a room uh, on different social media sites propagating uh, the ANC's message. It didn't, it didn't work terribly well. Uh, but for what it's worth, it was there. I suspect other parties were doing pretty much the same. Hmm. I think one, one of the, our first experiences of this kind of, you know, interference, I would call it, is Bell Pottinger's ill-fated campaign. And I think they ceded certain terms that have now become normative in our political discourse and have got great legitimacy in our political discourse. And that's when I first stood up and took notice and thought, well, this is a serious threat. If they can do this in six to eight months, well, politics and the terrain of political contestation uh, is changing, which is one of the reasons why, you know, I, I convened a group of people to try and set up this organization. Um, you know, we onto a big theme here. And, and I want to ask a bit more general question as we move towards closing the discussion, which is more about what are the implications for democracy at large? And what are the implications for us and what we're seeing in South Africa? Well, you know, I, I don't want to talk about the implications for democracy because I think the implications for democracy are quite clear, right? But let's just understand what we, what we mean when we talk about democracy. For me, democracy is about the ability to use voice, to use, you know, to exercise choice, to participate in things, um, to, to have my rights recognized, that's the most basic stuff, right? All the, all the, all the different freedoms um, and, and liberal attachments that come with them, right? That's, that's what we understand democracy to be. Voice, choice, participation, rights, liberty, and the era of serious competition and contestation of different ideas, right? Different political parties, different social uh, groups, uh, even extending onto social media, right? And I would include here the right to free media and so and so on, the right to organize, the right to associate in civil society, so on. Those are all those are all aspects of democracy for me. And we, Kamaran, you've covered the ground in terms of what technology, technology platforms and instruments can do in terms of facilitating some of those aspects of participation, of exchange of ideas, even if they be rude and, and they be extreme, right? There's still an exchange going on. There's still voice being amplified. So I think in some ways it does that. To the extent that there's bullying and so on, it, it, um, it can dampen those voices, right? Fair enough. We know that there's a need for regulation. But when you transition from a point of democratic politics, which is what we've just been talking about, you know, politics with the normative emphasis of democracy, with all those values we just spoke about, and you transition from democratic politics to democratic government, the uses of technology become much more interesting and much more useful, by the way. Because when you're talking about democratic government, you're talking about the way in which 
those people who contested for power uh, in, 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 in the space of competition and contestation now have to administer and instrumentalize power. They have to use power. They have to manage it. You now as a citizen can use the power of social media to raise questions, to raise issues, to pose questions, and as a, as a tool of oversight to alert the public, to alert opposition party members, to alert anyone who's sitting in a council, in a provincial legislature, national parliament to an issue. You can tag them. You can do all kinds of things. And so as an as a instrument of accountability, as an instrument of oversight, as an instrument of demanding responsiveness in the realm of democratic government, I think it's got some fantastic uses. But again, it will be susceptible to the same limitations around you know, penetration and so on. That's the more basic stuff, right? But then it will have its limitations and its disadvantages around bullying, around being ignored, around using a platform to ask sweetheart questions and then you know, continuing to campaign uh, or to use the platform for nefarious purposes and make accusations accusations about people in government or about budgets or about expenditure or about corruption and all kinds of things. So again, it can be potentially boon and bust, but prudently used. This this platform, this instrument has a range of uses for citizens to be able to use it to demand responsiveness and accountability and stimulate oversight. And for me, that why, that's where some of the better advantages are as a barometer of how well or badly governments may in fact be performing. Uh, and then, of course, you know, parties can be clever in how they use it. They can use it to gauge public sentiment. Of course, we know that this is not the whole universe. I mean, we don't have to bear repeating that. But as an indicator of what's going on, they get a bellwether indication of, you know, do people like you working with so-and-so? Do they like this kind of policy posture? And when you open up the policy realm, you can start having meaningful conversations. Aside, it will not get traction. It won't get thousands and hundreds of thousands of of likes and retweets and interactions on Facebook or posts on, on Instagram and so on. But you can open up policy conversations about certain ideas that you want to put out there around reclamation, around renewables. And you see the top the discussions on ESCOM. I mean, other than people just being angry, there are real discussions about renewables. What extent can you go to renewables? Does renewables have its own downsides in the fact that solar panels have to be disposed of after 25 years? or whatever. So those meaningful, reasonable conversations about actual approaches which change lives are possible on the platform, particularly when it comes to democratic government, even if not always to facilitate democratic politics. Mm. Thanks, Ibrahim. That's fascinating and spot on. I think you know, your emphasis on the role of technology in democratic governance is where it's all at. Um, you know, in fact, a lot of the vision of CABC was to, you know, long-term vision is to try and encourage this active citizen engagement online precisely to do that. Um, if, if, if government wants to build a new power station, <laughs> to kind of harness that voice and even while they're voting in the provincial legislature to make the polling numbers known, kind of not a full liquid democracy where people are dictating every decision, but at least having their voice in the chambers with those politicians so that this kind of politics where you make promises to people, the you know, the electorate, and then once you're in power, you start listening to the lobby groups and do pretty much the opposite of what you promised comes to an end. 
uh, that's about reining in politicians and bringing them back into serving the public good, you know, driven by citizen engagement. Um, I think you've answered my second question there, because I was going to say, how do we make democracy work for us in this climate? But safe to say, I think, you know, it's a long road. Uh, Some of the challenges that we're facing on this road, I mean, are manifesting around us right now. We're seeing how easily whole societies can be hijacked um, by populist invective, this kind of you know, really divisive and polarizing rhetoric. And, you know, I suppose, you know, in a, a much more, a bigger question is, especially someone like you, who I, I, has, you know, real deep political insight. How do you see it panning out though? You know, what road are we on? Where are we headed? You know, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but, you know, even speculatively, what's your sense or your intuition about where we're going? Well, the first is I think we have to have a government which releases more bandwidth. We've got, we've got to get the spectrum business and just getting basics absolutely right to get the kind of, I mean, can we cross broadcast onto the digital platform already? I, it's, it's, it's delayed it's been delayed endlessly and it needs to happen. And this bandwidth needs to be released so we can actually get there. Second is you have to start reducing the cost of data. Before, Kamaran, you can talk about anything, about the potential uses, downsides, upsides of, of all of this stuff. Those guys in the corporates who set the pricing uh, on the technologies and the platforms and the instruments have to be reined into a certain degree. So when we spoke about regulation earlier on, we've got to look at pricing. And of course, here, if I sounded like a political liberal, I'm very happy to sound like an um, over-bureaucratized socialist who is prepared to have government intervening to capping prices at a, cert- at a certain point to enable more people to get into the platform. And then we might see a real versioning of what its, its real potentialities are. But I'm wondering in my own mind about whether technology can help. Of course, it's going to help government in certain ways. It's going to help processes of governance in certain ways. By government, I mean the administration and management of power, of the bureaucracy, of the technocracy, of doing routine maintenance and repair and so on, uh, of infrastructure. It can't build it, but it can alert to what needs to happen in order to keep it going. It can assist government in managing its resources and doing all and administering it and so on. Can it help us as citizens in restoring trust and credibility in government? So if government was not responsive in the real world, will they be more responsive if we have and if they have better uh, technological tools, if they're able to use and harness the power and potential of, of of whatever instruments are available? And the answer would be, you know, a halfway yes. And the reason it's a halfway yes is because the actual responsiveness and accountability is dependent on a mindset, on political culture, not on the, not on the platform that you have. Um, so the platform can take you that far. Of course, it might make some of the lazier ones uh, more 
easily amenable to being and more easily available to being responsive rather than doing the hard work of communication generally. And so they find that there's an instrument they can use with a couple of clicks, they might go for it. But, but you know, I really think if someone was unprepared to be uh, and to behave in ways which are credible, um, that they will not use new technologies and new platforms uh, in ways which are going to make them any more. So I think there needs to be a change in the mindset and the real potential will be these instruments as a tool for citizens to be able to not only organize better, but to demand a level of better accountability. So I think that's where, uh, that's where it's, it's, it's going to live. But I'm under no illusions, right? I mean, these instruments, which have been created and managed by big tech um, themselves, they've simulate, they've simultaneously done both. They've they've helped uh, politics progress and they've hindered it. They've promoted development, uh, but they've also precipitated destruction. Uh, I mean, look what might be happening on on the coast. So they precipitate some kind of development, but they can also do destruction. They can proliferate discourse. They can also dampen it. But it gives voice to some, it might silence others, it will facilitate some degree of transparency, sure, some free flow of information, that's the way in which we can use it and, and harness it. But it can also fabricate, it can distort information, it can make that proliferate. But the real question is, is the powerful tech companies who develop these things, their strength and versatility sometimes even outstrips government, right? So governments need to wake up about not just the light touch regulation that you and I spoke about earlier, but how they work with these guys to enhance the management and administration of power and not so much on how best do I use this tool as a surveillance tool, because I think that for me is a big issue. Surveillance, creeping on privacy, issues of privacy, uh, limitations on the exercise of public authority and how some of these tools might enable a greater amount of probity by the amount of by probity i don't mean good probity i mean probity into our private and personal lives and using the instruments for nefarious purposes equally uh, a real risk so I'm torn between where that is, but I can see the real potential for social change if used properly, and I can see the potential for better management and administration of power, and I think that's where its potentials lie in the future. But we really do need to be cautious about the fact that these tech companies, these platform owners have grown so big that they're actually bigger than governments and can, in some cases, even dictate to governments what they do. Now, if we can't get the basics right around just expanding bandwidth and controlling the, 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 the prices and the, the way in which people can get onto these platforms, I have difficulty in understanding how we're going to rein in these guys. And so the future we need to think about is, are we going to be ruled and governed by people who we may not have elected, but who we voluntarily subscribe to, or are we going to incentivize the people who we've given legitimate authority to govern on our behalf to catch up with what's going on and ensure that there is a balance that we take in the way in which we use these instruments of technology? Brilliantly summarized, Brian. You really you tied the digital divide all the way through to the societal regulation of surveillance capitalism. It's Fascinating speaking to you, and I'd really love to chat to you again on the pulse. 
thank you so much for your time and for the work that you do and for the public presence that you have. It's, it's you know, people like you make it worth being in the society. It, it gives me hope every time I see someone like you breaking down what's going on. So thank you very much. Thanks very much. And hopefully someone listens to you and they start to pay me the big bucks. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Thanks. Take care, Brian. Thanks, Kamara. Nice to chat to you. And there you have it. In this episode, we discussed how social media has the potential to play a role in strengthening elections and democracy. We've also taken a critical look at how it's been abused by political parties and leaders in South Africa in the latest local government elections. This threatens to undermine democracy and dampen the voice of the electorate. We've also sketched out what is needed for social media to become a positive force in democratic politics, one that empowers citizens. While the state has a role to play in making this happen, more importantly, it's going to require the big platforms to take bold steps towards ensuring that their platforms serve the public interests and not just the interests of those who hold political and economic power. Thank you again to Ibrahim Fakir for a fascinating conversation filled with deep insights on both fronts. See you next time.